have you ever considered yourselves to be stewards? And no, I don't mean like a steward or a stewardess on an airline, you know, somebody who's like a flight attendant, or maybe somebody who hosts a club, like on the office, the Finer Things Club, something of that sort, but rather somebody who is a steward, who truly takes care of something, who has been entrusted with the care of someone else's valuables. If you ever have served in customer service like I did back when I was younger, uh, back when I was a teenager in high school, I served for a couple years, I say serve, but I, I worked at Chick-fil-A in customer service uh, on the front line, so to speak, taking people's orders all the time. Anybody who walked into Chick-fil-A, I would immediately have to say thank you in a very exhaustible way over and over and over again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. But in the midst of all that, I learned the art of service in many ways. If, if you've ever been involved in customer service, you know probably what I'm talking about. This idea of always being about the good of somebody else and pleasing them. But notice this, and we're about to see this in our text this morning as we continue in our series in Acts, that there is a stark difference between the idea of service and the idea of stewardship. Stewardship. See, service has this idea of pleasing somebody else, maybe even for the wrong motives, to get your own way or whatever it might be, to put on a certain persona in front of somebody else. But stewardship has the good of the owner in mind, not just the good of the people that you're serving in mind. It has the good of the owner and the owner's goods at the forefront of their attention. Well, here in our passage this morning in Acts 6, 1 through 7, we're about to see this office of the deacon, or quite literally a servant, as it means in the original language, established. And what's interesting to note about this office of the deacon before we dive into our passage this morning in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, is that the office of the deacon is one, as our book of church order says, is one of perpetuity or continuation. It's an ordinary office that is meant to be and always be for all of time until Christ returns. But the office of the deacon is also not just about service. Again, it's about stewardship. It's about caring for the bride of Christ as Christ loves her and as Christ gave himself for her. The office of the deacon, as we're about to see in Acts 6, has really the goal of seeing Christ's kingdom come and flourish to its fullest extent here upon this earth. But deeper still, the office of the deacon is not then just this earthly office. It is truly one with heaven in mind. It's one of a spiritual nature. And it's marked by wisdom and love for Christ and love for Christ's people. And so in essence, deacons who serve, as we're about to see here in the narrative, are those who have an eternal ROI, or return on investment, at hand, in front of them. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts 6, 1 through 7, if you have yet to do so. As we're about to read the text this morning, I want us to notice uh, three major sections in this text, which we'll cover a little later. But before we read this text, I want us to keep this idea in mind, this, this big idea, if you will, or this proposition that I want us to put in front of us. And this is here in the bulletin in front of you as well. 
But this proposition that spirit-filled wisdom actually promotes healthy church growth. Again, spirit-filled wisdom promotes healthy church growth. With that in mind, let's go ahead and come to the word of God this morning from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our series. The word of God, which is forever faithful and true, says this to us. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily contribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will then appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose uh, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What a wonderful picture right in front of us. Let's go ahead and come before God, uh, that higher throne, and pray to him in this time. (laughs) Lord God, we thank you for the reading of your word, which always is purposed to accomplish some particular task. And so, God, we ask that as your word has been read over us, as it's already begun to do its work by the Holy Spirit, Will you continue to impress the truths that you want each one of us as individuals and as a church to take away this morning? Would you remind us of your goodness and your grace in giving us your word to guide us, to sustain us, and to lead us in the path of righteousness? To lead us toward a person in particular, the one who is the path of life himself. Jesus Christ. And so Christ, we ask that you would be honored in this time, that your Holy Spirit would come and and assure our hearts of the grace of which we have read about. And you, O Holy Father, may you bless us in such a way that as we walk away from this text later this morning, we'd be refreshed and nourished by it, all to the praise of your glorious grace. And so we pray all this in your holy name, O God. Amen. Well, friends, as we uh, come to this text this morning, I want to remind us briefly of uh, the context of which we've been reading about. Uh, It's been a couple weeks since we have picked up the book of Acts, and we had a little bit of a, a side note last Sunday as we looked at Psalm 110. And so I want to remind us of the immediate context Uh, The verse right before this passage that we just read in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, to remind us what was going on. Uh, Acts 5, 42 tells us the following. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching 
that the Christ is Jesus. What a beautiful truth. The Christ is Jesus. Their entire lives devoted to this cause. And yet here we see something happen within the church that doesn't seem to be of that same sense of unity and like-mindedness. One verse later, we begin to see a dissension of sorts already happening as they begin to lose their focus upon the things of Christ and turn inward upon themselves. Here, as it talks about those who were attending the temple and from house to house, it has both the apostles, the twelve in mind, but also the full number of the disciples. Potentially, all of them were still gathered here. The growing number of 5,000 and more growing and increasing every day. Who knows how many disciples here were saved at this point. And yet here, in the midst of this growing number of believers, women, men, and children, there was a picture of conflict about to happen. But God set them up for success. And I want us to catch that this morning. Above all else, that Christ, the true shepherd and the king of his church, didn't leave them alone. He guided them through this. How did he do that? Well, he set up good, healthy leaders in front of them. Here again, we have in light of us, uh, right before us, the disciples, but also the 12 apostles right here in front of us. These 12 apostles, though, who were, if anything, carrying too much of the weight at this point in church history. The 12 apostles were essentially also acting, and rightfully so, as pastors over the people, as elders, as overseers, but also as evangelists and shepherds and teachers all simultaneously. All too much, admittedly so, for only 12 people out of a growing number of 5,000, 6,000, however, however many there might have been at that point. This was quite the feat for the 12 apostles alone to serve as not only apostles, but also, as far as we can tell from the text, in a shepherding role. And yet, over the coming decades, they began to instill healthy church leadership, elders by name, presbyters, that Greek word for elder, over every single church, a plurality of elders, in fact, that they would be there to guide and to guard and to shepherd the church in the midst of whatever would come up against them. Over the coming decades, in the writings of John and Peter and Paul, some of the apostles themselves, of course, they referred to themselves as fellow pastors or fellow elders whenever they would write to people like Timothy or Titus or others. They would refer to these other pastors as fellow pastors. You know, we too are right there on the front lines with you. But granted, these 12 were apostles first and foremost. They were those who had seen the resurrected Christ in the flesh. They were those even who had been commissioned by him directly. And so there was a particular office for them as, a, as an apostle in that particular place in church history that was unlike any other, just for them, sanctioned and commissioned by Christ. But again, note this, they were also trying to serve as pastors. And so in light of this, this one-sided, almost lopsided view of leadership in the church, emphasizing elders and elders alone, seemingly so, a problem of a spiritual nature began to arise within the congregation. Again, a congregation of at least 5,000 people at this point, 
quite the megachurch, to say the least. See, at this point, Jews alone were not coming to Christ, but Greeks also. Hellenists, by name here, as we just read, in contrast to those of the Hebraic lineage or heritage, Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And though the church, as we had seen a couple times already, uh, by name, specifically in verses such as Acts uh, 2.44 and Acts 4.32, had been seen to have everything in common, to share everything, almost to live in a communal lifestyle, uh, it worked for only so long a time. At this point here, after moments like Ananias and Sapphira where things were being taken advantage of, this way of communal living proved to be ineffective and truly idyllic and not possible in this life. It proved to be ineffective. And it was also not sustainable. How so? Because of the human condition. See, like a like it or not, we as people, even as saints, are of course still simultaneously sinners. And even though we might desire a perfect community where we can just all get along and live peacefully so, even maybe share goods and live in such a way, <clears throat> it's not possible in this life. For we often, and are by our very nature even, given in our dispositions to a spirit of self-centeredness. And the same spirit of self-centeredness began to arise within the early church. How did it do that? Well, it arose in various ways. First, as we see here in the text, in the realm of favoritism. Favoritism of Jews over Greeks that began to rear its own ugly head. Also, those who were strong and capable ended up receiving more than those who were weak, or at least in the sight of other people. And so classism between those of prominence and those who were seen as weaker began to even arise. And yet all of these things we know as these Greeks were overlooked and widows by name, Greek widows nonetheless, all of these things were of course anti-Christ. They ran contrary to the gospel of Christ. And so those who were being brought into the church were bringing in, essentially, their own baggage with them. That kind of baggage doesn't belong to Christianity, and I want us to catch that, but it does belong to us as sinners. And there's a stark difference between that. The Christian faith doesn't promote classism or racism or impartiality, but our sin, nevertheless, oftentimes finds its way into the church, even in those forms. See, before the early believers, division was put in front of them. Division that easily could have divided the church even within just a few months of its formation here in the New Testament. Division over class or race or ethnicity or background. And all of this could have easily been just completely torn apart. The beauty, the peace, and the purity of Christ's church because of assumptions and accusations being thrown around. If all these things were left unchecked without spiritual and healthy leadership over them, the church could have been put away with and destroyed, humanly speaking. Now, unfortunately, this sounds all too familiar 
uh, to us, I'm sure, in our own day and age. A lot of us have felt, uh, maybe not to the full extent, but the notion of classism or racism or favoritism in various ways. We who might be in a certain demographic might feel it more often than others. And we live in a day and age, unfortunately, that these tensions have become only more aggrandized and worsened. These things have become part of uh, even the public arena, not only in politics, but even on TV or movies. We see it oftentimes around us. But the wonderful thing, and this isn't to trivialize these issues in any way, the wonderful thing, though, is that God's word specifically addresses these things, even right here in Acts 6. See, God himself doesn't leave us without an answer. How do we tend to these things when we are faced with them? See, the very fact that injustice appears in the word of God here in Acts 6, as these Greek widows were being taken advantage of and not being given as much as the young, healthy Jewish men, we recognize, though, that this is something that's of importance to God himself, our loving Father in heaven, who cares for us, who cares for the orphan and who cares for the widow alike, who cares for the outsider and desires to bring them in. Now, Acts 6, verse 1 says, specifically in this context, that the Greek widows were being neglected in the daily contributions. These were women who had already lost their husbands, who had suffered so much earthly pain and longing. And now they were being mistreated by the church and people within the church of all places. What a horrible thing. And all of this was happening, at least according to our knowledge, as God's word records, because of their demographic. They were being dishonored, not honored, as 1 Timothy 5 says, to honor widows, as we ought to do. They were rather being dishonored and shut down. Again, they had suffered so much already, losing so much in their own families, and yet here they began to suffer unnecessarily in the church, and they experienced the brokenness that sin brings. Now, granted, I have to say this, these Older women were not of any greater significance than the young Hebrew men. No, rather, there is something about the gospel that brings a levelness to our relationship with one another. Not one over the other, but rather to recognize that each one of us, men and women alike, are made in the image of God, God who loves us. But such a neglect of these Greek widows here in this context was not just a matter of class or standing in society. It was truly, at a deeper level, a spiritual matter. But oftentimes, spiritual matters go hand in hand with tangible and real felt needs. And so I love the way that God, in the word of God, addresses this need. He addresses this by essentially tending to their real felt actual needs. How? By providing healthy leadership where there was not. See, God the Father did not neglect these Greek widows that we just read about. No, God the Father loved them 
And if they were dishonored as they were, he in turn, in his providence, his kind providence at that, brought them the honor that they deserved in time. And furthermore, not only was the Father's love demonstrated for these people in the church, but Christ's love was also evidenced here in this text. Where do we see Christ here in this text in particular? We might not see his name right here in front of us, but how did the apostles exercise their authority? Of course, they did it only in Christ's name, but they also, arguably so, leaned in upon Christ's teachings in the Gospels. See, in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Christ instructed and even commanded the apostles, the same 12 who would then take action here, in how to address these kinds of conflicts in the church. When these things would arise, he in advance, under his kingly, shepherdly authority over them, gave them a wonderful instruction. So what does Matthew 18 say? One well, verses 15 through 17, Matthew 18, Christ's own words to his apostles in advance say this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, to paraphrase a little bit, essentially as an outsider of the church, an outsider of the faith. I love, though, how conflict itself in the church is never without purpose. And I hope that we hear this too. As we continue on, as we hear how the apostles then responded to this dilemma and this problem that was set before them, they didn't respond by throwing their hands in the air and walking away or ignoring it. Rather, they addressed it. And again, they heeded Christ's own words from Matthew 18 in how they then handled this. See, conflict itself has, of course, this point of decision that it brings to people, a point of crisis, if you will, where we have to choose one thing or the other. And in this case, it was either to be unified and to pursue peace or to decide to dissent. And here, by God's grace, the church chose peace over dissent. They chose to be unified. The beauty of conflict is that it has this deep purpose behind it. Uh, as one of our fellow PCA pastors a little further north in Philadelphia often likes to say, the purpose of conflict within the church is actually the glory of God. The glory of God is actually brought about when people in the church abide by the word of God in the midst of conflict. Uh, Alfred Poyer is the, the one who wrote those kinds of words, and uh, he's a wonderful counselor who teaches up at Westminster Seminary now. And he wrote the book called The Peacemaking Pastor, a wonderful book uh, as part of the peacemaker's ministry. Uh, it's a wonderful resource if you ever are met with conflict, as I'm sure we all are in different ways, um, to read that book called The Peacemaker. And even if you want to venture out, The Peacemaking Pastor by Alfred Poyer, um, who again says that the glory of God is actually the goal of even earthly conflict. But friends, here in Acts 6, the church again they could have easily chosen dissension or even to continue sinning against one another 
in how they handled this conflict that was put before them. Because the church, it was still volatile. It was still in this place of, of infancy in many ways where they were trying to figure certain things out. Jew and Gentile coming together for the first time, so it seemed. And so they had this place where all of this classism and favoritism could have easily splintered the church. But thankfully, they didn't choose that. Rather, of all the people that could have led the way, notice that it was the Hellenists, meaning the Gentiles, the Greeks, who arose and actually rose this complaint and brought the complaint to essentially the session or the apostles here. See, the Hellenists, ironically enough, were actually being the most biblical in this way. They brought up a formal complaint to those who were serving as elders. And they tried to follow Matthew 18, essentially. And as such, the Lord blessed this effort. Again, what could have torn apart the church proved to be something that ended up unifying it because of healthy leadership. So how did the apostles tend this? Well, their answer is here, given to us in verse 2 and following. Here again, verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, implicitly so again, according to Matthew 18, and said, it is not right for us that we, meaning those who are serving as pastors essentially, should give up preaching the word of God to do what? To serve tables. Literally the idea of being a deacon. That's literally what the word means, to serve tables, to deacon. But their solution then was brought before us, thankfully. And this brings us to the second point, the, the message. The solution is here in front of us in verses 3 through 6. This solution that they proposed to the people. See, the apostles, they, they saw this as not merely this tangible need, but also a spiritual matter. And so they wanted to actually care for the people's souls and shepherd them well in the midst of this conflict. But they also didn't see this as purely a spiritual matter, but again, one of true, real, tangible needs. And so they ended up exercising spiritual authority and oversight by delegating, by putting into practice the precedents that had already been set before them in the Old Testament, those who would serve the people of Israel, those who would serve the assembly, the congregation of God's people. Here then their collective response as a session, as the group of elders, pastors, apostles in this case, in verses three through four. They said this, therefore brothers, speaking to the whole group here, 5,000 plus people, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, in essence, here in this moment, the ministry of Christ to his church through healthy leadership was bifurcated. Not just elders anymore, but also deacons. Two important roles within the church. And the people were amazed by these words of wisdom that were set before them. And so they obeyed these apostles, choosing seven men who were above reproach, who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who were wise and who had already proven to be above reproach within the community. And if you think about it, that's an incredible thing to achieve if you were known by nearly 5,000 plus people 
these folks were probably well known if they were that quick to find seven men among them and even unanimously choose them. They were obvious picks, in other words. These men were already fit for the task. But I love the fact that this wasn't a popularity contest. It wasn't like choosing a prom king or prom queen or like an American Idol kind of contest. Rather, this was actually a matter of finding provenness. Proven men who would lead the church well. But the beauty of this office, as we continue on in the text, is that we see that this office of the deacon is not just a one-time thing. This was an office that was meant to always be until Christ returns. An office that is meant to be established in good timing, at the proper timing, in Christ's church, and in every local church when the time is right. Why? Well, because the office of the deacon, just like that of the elder, is set apart in such a way that it exemplifies Christ's leadership, Christ's care for the church. See, elders alone, as overseers and shepherds, don't just exemplify Christ. So do deacons in how they serve. They exemplify Christ and his wonderful goodness toward his church. Because Christ himself is not only the true shepherd, he is also the true minister to his church, the true servant, if you will, the suffering servant as we know of him in Isaiah. His own words in Mark 10, verse 45, tell us this, that the Son of Man came not to be served or ministered to or deaconed to, if you will, but he came to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a beautiful picture. That Christ is not just true shepherd, but also true minister, true deacon, servant, who stewards his church so well. And the apostles, they honored Christ in such a way. Knowing, even again, the context of Matthew 18, in verse 18 of Matthew, it goes on and it says that of these apostles, whatever they would bind on earth had already been bound in heaven. And whatever they would loose upon the earth had already been loosed in heaven. And so when they set up this role of the deacon, this was something that Christ had already wanted them to do, in other words. As an aside, this is why our denomination, the PCA, upholds the integrity of the office of the deacon and why we hold it in a high regard, not just as a thing to check off, but rather something that is of importance in the life of a healthy church. For this office of the deacon is not only biblical, but it's also a wise thing to have and to establish. And it's even commanded of us. See, as a church and mission status here at Christ's Covenant, I realize that in many ways we're talking about future things. You know, we don't have, of course, a full session here on site. We're not particularized as a church. And we don't even have deacons yet established here. But with full confidence in the Lord and his kindness to us as a church, I pray and I hope we all would even take upon ourselves this effort to pray for God to raise up wonderful men who can serve as ruling elders and deacons in God's good timing. And so may we be people who would seek out those who are wise and above reproach to help lead us in due time, 
when the time is right. It could be two or three years from now. It could be one year from now. We just don't know. But would you join me in praying for that? That Christ would bless our church in such a way with many who have a heart for Christ and even a knack for good, healthy stewardship, which wouldn't hurt either. So what do we look for in terms of a deacon? What are the qualifications? Uh, well, to help aid us in what we are to look for in due time, consider the words of the Apostle Paul to one of his protégés, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was, as far as we know, the lead pastor of the church of Ephesus. And so when Paul was writing him in 1 Timothy, Paul was writing this young man who was essentially at uh, a nice uh, port kind of town. Uh, think Virginia Beach or Myrtle Beach. I know a lot of us are about to go on vacation for Memorial Day. Um, and so imagine a beach in front of you. And that's essentially where Timothy was shepherding and caring for this church, was at the front, the waterfront. And so in the midst of all the cawing of the seagulls and the salty, briny air, Timothy received as a pastor over the church of Ephesus, along with the other elders, these instructions from Paul, an apostle, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 18 through 13, about who to look for when you're installing deacons. And Paul told him such things, that these men, these potential deacon candidates, were to be dignified men. These men were not to be double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Rather, they would, be, they would be men who held the mystery of the gospel, of the faith, in a high regard and with a clear conscience. They were men who had been tested first and who had already proven themselves faithful in the midst of the church. In essence, they had already been serving there as members for a long time, and they were recognized as those who served. Their wives also, if they were married, were also those who were dignified. Not gossipers or slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Women who loved Christ and who exemplified Christ before others. And these men who were to serve as deacons were those who continued to manage not only their marriage as well, if they were married, but also their households. Not only their welfare, but even if they had children, their own offspring, their grandchildren, whatever it might be, they were to manage it well. And as such, these men, these candidates for that of a deacon, were those who enjoyed then a good standing before the people and those in leadership. They were those also who held great confidence in the faith of Christ Jesus. Church, as you hear these qualifications of what a healthy deacon candidate would look like, do you also recognize the importance of all of these qualities? These things are there to help build up the church and protect it. And so may the Lord give us wisdom in recognizing in his timing, in his timing alone, uh, such men as these for our own church when that time comes. Well, friends, this finally brings us to the third point, and this is the shortest point of them all. Uh, this comes to us in verse 7, which is the result. So we've seen the problem, we've seen the solution, but now we're about to see the result of healthy biblical instruction for the church. Now, as the first deacons were set before the apostles in Acts 6, notice that it was a joint effort between the church recognizing them, but also essentially the elders 
those serving as elders, the apostles here, they were the ones who installed them and ordained them. And so it was a joint effort between both the church and those who were already in leadership. That's a beautiful picture because it's about the good of both leadership but also those who are being served. And this, this healthy church leadership that was set up uh, brought about peace. It was there to actually serve not only this one uh, neglect of these widows, the situation in front of us in the text, but future occurrences, future areas where mercy toward those who were disgraced would be needed, where needs would be filled and met. See, where confusion and contest could have easily found their way into the church, even in how they chose the seven, thankfully the church was unified in this. And so were those who were serving them, the apostles. And they chose unity in the name of Christ over their own popularity. Verse 7 tells us the following. As a result of these seven being chosen, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. See, where before in Acts 2 verses or two, uh, all the way through chapter five, we had seen this idea of the church increasing and growing over and over again by addition. Those were added to the church and added and added and on and on. Here, we see something a little different. Uh, For those of you who are children here, do you recognize that it's not about addition or adding anymore? Rather, what's going on here is actually multiplication which is a lot faster than addition, of course. Rather than adding one, two, three, four, we see this exponential growth in the church, this multiplication happen. Two, four, 16, 256. Big numbers indeed. And all of this happened because of healthy church leadership, but especially the spirit of God who was working in them. See, I want us to catch this, that the church didn't just grow numerically, though, but spiritually. Why? Because the dividing wall of hostility was torn apart right here between Jew and Gentile in Acts 6. The dividing wall that could have easily put these Hellenistic widows against young Hebrew men was done away with. And through the gospel of Jesus there was peace. And it was only the gospel of Jesus that could bring about this peace. No amount of quote-unquote social justice, no amount of um, recompense or reparations or anything of the sort could have been done on a human level. Rather, it was the gospel of Jesus, the cross of Christ alone, which brought peace. And it's so important for us to catch that, especially as we think about our own day and age. It's not about, again, humanistic, human-focused concepts of social justice. Rather, it's about biblical justice, how God has instructed peace and purity within the church to be there and established so that it flourishes. The great equalizer between these two parties that had conflict between them was then nothing short of the cross of Christ, It wasn't some political motive or agenda. It was the cross. Jesus and his spilt blood 
for men and women alike, for Jew and Gentile alike, for slave and for free alike. That was the great equalizer. Only Jesus and his gospel of grace can heal ethnic tension. And so may we in the church be the first to exemplify this because the culture will never get this right. Only the church, by the grace of God, can get this right. And did you hear one of the other results in verse 7 of chapter 6? Catch this. As a result of seeing how the gospel took root within the church and had its way, something else that was also marvelous began to happen. It says this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Those who had rejected Christ, who had said, we don't want him, we want things on our own terms, religion on our terms, who had even put him to the death upon the cross, now we're coming to faith in him, even as they saw the church actually be the church. See, when the gospel is obeyed, our evangelism and how we share the gospel message itself is only validated all the more. Our evangelism before others. And so there are a few key takeaways that are more practical for us as a church here at Christ's Covenant. Uh, again, first and foremost, we don't obviously have deacons here at our church at this time. We are indeed a church in mission status. And so one of the practical ways that we can even put this into motion, this text in Acts 6, for our own day and our own church, is for us to now, even now, years ahead of time maybe, to be praying for God to raise up leaders, healthy deacons and ruling elders alike. May we be people who pray for that big idea that I mentioned earlier, uh, for spirit-filled, for Christ-centered uh, wisdom to promote and even put into action healthy growth. But the thing is, healthy spiritual pastoral oversight and growth and understanding grace, these things do promote peace and purity of the church in the long haul. Even though we might not see the effects of our prayers as we pray for healthy leadership down the road for our church, even as we continue on in faith, know that the seeds that are being sown as we are praying will bear fruit when the time comes. None of this is wasted. This season in our church's life is not wasted. Additionally, note this on a separate note of application. Note that authentic discipleship, it surely does, as we see throughout the book of Acts, it does involve numbers. We can't be people who just ignore numbers. But we also shouldn't be people who are so infatuated by them that we lose focus of the real thing. Because healthy, authentic discipleship is more than just that. It's about the genuineness of it. Not just the quantity, but the quality of our discipleship. See, here up until this point in Acts, we had seen the church grow numerically over and over and over again, and it was even recorded how many of those were being saved. You know, 12, 120, a few thousand, now 5,000, etc. But at some point, the numbers stopped being counted. And it might seem a little aloof to us that they just stopped counting those numbers, but I think it proves the point. 
that at a certain point, discipleship is not truly about these things, but rather about the marvelous work of God in our midst. See, not only were Jews being saved here, Gentiles were being saved. Not only were men of prominence and power and of health and prestige being saved, but older women who were widows were being saved. Orphans, presumably so as well. Not only were the everyday men and women being saved, even though, but even here in verse 7, now priests were being saved and brought to the faith in Christ. And so Christianity to this day has continued to grow in a multiplication way, an exponential way to this day. As now 2,000 years later, of course, untold billions of people have been saved by the gospel. Billions whom we will never fully know the number of. But know this, that though the visible number of the church in various parts of the world at various times seems to increase and decrease at times in different seasons and in different ways, it's all part of God's timing. Churches grow in number and shrink in number. It's all part of God's plan that is mysterious to us. Parts of the world, for instance, where Christianity once flourished, such as Northern Africa, where Augustine was located, or even Europe, or the United States for the last few centuries now, where it once flourished, it now seems to be a little burned over in certain places, especially places like the Northeast, or out West, where I'm from. Christianity seems to be almost a little dead in the water, humanly speaking, but it's not. I mean, when you look at the whole of Africa now, India, China, South Korea, even North Korea, if you read certain reports, Christianity is now exploding like never before. Untold millions are coming to faith on an annual basis. We don't even know the number because it's beyond counting, just as it was here in Acts. And so this gospel is continuing to have its effect and lives and souls are being saved. So know this church is another final point of application for us that sometimes the appearance of erosion in church numbers is simply the fact that sometimes sand and rock are relocated, figuratively speaking. Sometimes when we see people come and go, we realize that God is actually doing something at work that is just bigger than our own reach. Sometimes the appearance of what looks like death to us, wonderful life that was blossoming and blooming, that now seems a little dead in certain ways, is actually indicative of life to come. So it was with Christ in the grave. And this is what reminds us of the gospel. See, he who was crucified and put to death for our sake was the same one who rose again victoriously, who was essentially planted like a seed in the ground for three days and yet rose again to newness of life. And if we are in Christ, our hearts can and should be glad no matter the rise or fall of populations or how big or small our church might be in different seasons. If we are in Christ, our whole being can and it should rejoice. If we are in Christ, our flesh can and should also dwell secure. For just as the Father did not abandon the Son to shale in his death or let his Holy One see corruption, neither will he let us be abandoned 
or let us, his holy people, his church, Christ's covenant, be forsaken or forgotten. We will not see that corruption at the last. So as we conclude, know that God, our God, is for us, church. He is for the life and the good and the well-being of our church, Christ's covenant. Do we believe that? Yes, we might be a church in mission status. Yes, we might be a little small at this point in time, but we are not to be dismayed. We may not have established deacons or even as many elders as we would like here presently on site, but we still know the one who is the path of life, Christ Jesus the righteous. Jesus, the true shepherd or elder and the true deacon or minister to his church. And in his presence, which is here in our midst, friends, there is fullness of joy. And at Christ's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks be to God for this. One final word of encouragement for us is this quote that I just want to put before us. It's really a prayer uh, from one of my favorite pastors, uh, the old Presbyterian pastor, J. Garrison Machen, from 100 years ago, in regard to the same thing. He prayed this, God, send us ministers who, instead of merely avoiding denial of the cross, shall be on fire with the cross, whose whole life shall be one of burning sacrifice of gratitude to the blessed Savior, the Savior who loved them and who gave himself for it, who gave himself for them. May that be so. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is faithful to your church, sovereign over us, faithful forever, loving us, tending to us, providing for us. God, we ask that as we are going through this series on Acts and we are seeing the church go through hardships, as we saw a few weeks ago, and now conflict that is met by rejoicing and purity and peace, may we also recognize that these things can be and should be and will be true of us, that you are about our good, and that by your leadership, O Christ, you will continue to unify this, our church. And so, Lord, we recognize that unless you, O God, build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless, Lord, watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. So, Lord, let us not eat the bread of anxious toil, but let us feast upon you the bread of life, O Christ. And we pray all this in his holy name, Christ's holy name. Amen.